I'm stoked today. You know what? I'm not gonna lie. I am stoked today. I'm stoked. Why? Because the Grammy nominations just came in and I got nominated for my first ever Grammy. An album that I did with John Batiste. It's Corey Wong and John Batiste, Meditations. Very different from most of the music that I do. And it is even in the best new age album category. Never thought that I'd say I'm a new age artist, but I'll take it. And if any of you happen to be voting Grammy members, I mean, come on, holler at your boy, as they you know, used to say in like 2008 or whatever. Come at me with it. Speaking of Grammys, today's guest, Jacob Collier, was just nominated for Album of the Year for Jesse Volume 3. He's been working on a four-part series, four albums. This album that he just put out is my absolute favorite. He's got that in-your-face, funk, rhythmic thing, and his name is now becoming synonymous with music in general. He's starting to become a more ubiquitous character in the sphere of pop culture even, which is amazing because he's such a talented musician. To me, Jacob is a legend in the making. He is an incredible musician and truly an ambassador for music with a capital M. He's just an ambassador for what music is in the world. And it's so fun to see not only being amazing at what he does, but you can tell he's just so excited and having so much fun doing what he does and spreading that knowledge, spreading the joy of music to others around him. So, so this was really fun because Jacob and I have actually never met in person, but we have so many mutual friends and it's just been a long time coming. So hopefully this is the first of many encounters that we have together. Thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm, hey, I got no shame. Vote for him. Vote for me if you're in the Grammy voting world. I'll take anything I can get. I'm shameless. Come at me with this new age. Look out, Enya. Look out, Yanni. Look out, Pat Metheny. I'm looking to get... I, it, it is a dream for every young musician. I don't care. It's one thing to say, oh, word shows aren't my thing. Okay, whatever. They aren't your thing until you get nominated or you win one. Then it's like, you know what? That's pretty cool. And for whatever reason... It does just matter to the public and to the professional world. It just gives you some other sense of, I don't know, legitimacy, whatever. Do Jacob or I actually need that? I don't know. I mean, certainly him, no. And he's already won a couple Grammys. So I don't know. I I'm giving this disclaimer because I maybe I'm there's some sense of insecurity in me, but whatever, screw it. Vote for us. Ha! Thanks for hanging. Here's my interview with Jacob. This season of the Wong Notes podcast is sponsored by Neural DSP. All Wong Notes listeners get 30% off with the voucher code WONG. Neural DSP creates industry-leading guitar and bass plugins. The range includes signature plugins from some of the best modern guitarists, such as Corey Wong, Pliny, Adam Nolly Getgood, and Tozen Abasi. The archetype Corey Wong gives you everything from crystal clear tones to edge of breakup blues tones, whereas the 14 amp series delivers all the crushing modern metal tones you could possibly need. And that nameless is my favorite Marshall amp ever. There's a plug in here for every type of player and you can get a 14 day free trial for every single one of them without even entering your credit card details. Find me another company doing that. Once you've found the ones you like, you get that 30% off your purchase by entering the code WONG at checkout. Dude, how are you? 
I'm great, man. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm really good. I'm excited to, to finally hang out. I know. I know. It's been a long time coming. We have so many mutual friends and everybody's yeah. always like, oh, you know, Jacob, right? You, you guys have worked together and stuff. I'm like, no, we haven't yet. I, we haven't just, actually met. I crazily. know. Yeah, crazy. I was just working on a track with Kimbra, who I know you oh, were yeah. And she's yeah, like, yeah, I spoke to her just yesterday, actually. She's amazing. She's incredible. We were working on a tune writing a tune together, she's like, have you worked with Jacob yet? You guys, your guys' energy in the studio is so similar and your flow is like, <laughs> you guys need to, we need to make that happen. I was like, all right, all right, all right. I'm I believe in. it. I'm I in. believe <laughs> it. That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Kimber is, Kimber is, is a, an astonishing force of nature. I know. I've been such a huge fan of hers since the Vows album and the Golden yeah. Echo. I mean, she's so, she's insane. She's so the good. Golden Gold Echo, that, I, think, I think that's my number one from Kimber. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. Such interesting stuff in the bass department on that album. Because I think it was Thundercat yeah. on most of it. It was Thundercat, yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Killer. Well, I first got hip to you from, I think it was either a Flintstones or an Isn't She Lovely arrangement that you did. Uh-huh. And I thought it was just going to be, oh my gosh, we have this new gift to the world that's this vocal arranger guy. And then you've <laughs> developed your thing so much in the last several years. And I must say, you were ahead of your time because the way that you outlined your videos with you in separate screens is now basically what everybody's having to do in 2020 right. with the collaborations. <laughs> I've noticed that. I've noticed that. It, it's, it's a funny thing. I was in this room making music 10 years ago with my sister's iPad 2, which I, I took from her against her will wow. <laughs> and, and, and filmed all these, all, these, uh, you know, all these different instruments on. And that whole era for me was super important, but I, the, the tech wasn't really there yet. Uh, and I remember trying to do split screen videos in iMovie and at that time, I think you can do it now, but at that time you couldn't do it at all. And so I actually managed to get my hands on a cut of Final Cut Express, which is a bit of a gnarly program to use. Yeah. Um, and I've been on Logic for about, I suppose, about six years. I, I got Logic when I was 11. So the whole concept of layering and visualizing those layers, mixing those layers together, the, the thing was, was quite new. But I was determined to make it work because... I had this idea in my mind that I, you'd be able to look around the music and see all the different elements of the music and follow them along, you know, and sort of and and, and deep dive visually as well as audially, and and that to me was appealing. You clearly have the auditory sensitivity of extreme depths, but you, <laughs> oh, you bring up visual things. Do you see music go by? Do you visualize emotion? Do you visualize landscapes when you're writing and playing music? I often think about visual stuff. I wouldn't say I particularly see in, in a sort of synesthesia kind of vibe, like it's a green D and it's an A flat, which is purple, whatever. But but I've always been super interested in, especially symmetry, actually, just things that are organized and make sense and have balance and, and uh, you know, are, are sort of self-contained entities uh, within form and shape and things that have arcs and, and tell stories with, with shapes and stuff. So I love, I love that world. T to me, I guess... There's so many different ways you can see and talk about music. And so I didn't necessarily feel from sort of childhood that there was one particular way that was right and wrong, you know, to, to, to see the music as it was going by. But to me, I think it was always a challenge with the video thing to get it to not be distracting, you know, because there was, you know, so much... So much of the of the visual part of the musical experience nowadays is so important, but mm -hmm. it's easy, especially with music that's really multiple layered and and multifaceted and, and really rich and, and dense and stuff, just to have the visual take over completely. And and that that was my challenge from 
from that time about 10 years ago, it's like, how do I get this to be not just in the way of the music, but to be a, a part of the expression? That's interesting you say that. I think that is really true right now. The way that so many people absorb music is on YouTube or Instagram or some other thing where right, they're seeing totally. somebody do the thing. And that definitely has a lot to do with how we interact with the music that's being presented. I, I mean, I completely agree. I, so I, I first got hit to you through all the Wolf Boys, yeah. who I love so so dearly. And I would say that part of that magic and part of the, the, the magic of that collective and that brand and that feeling is as mu almost as much visual as it is audio, you know? Totally. And it feels so kind of contained and crackly and sort of compressed and old-fashioned, but super hip and current and grainy. And when I think of Wolfpack and the sound, it, it's it's that visual for me, you know? Yeah. And I, I just think it's so interesting how how that has kind of taken over the world and, and how you know, just how important the, just the style, the nuance, the, the kind of concept of the music is, is visual almost. And it feels like this kind of conglomerate sensation that you're, that you're buying into, whether you're listening or watching or at a, at, you know, at, at a gig or using the Wolf Compress, whatever, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's this, this kind of entity. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's fun. And that's so much a part of Jack's vision for the thing. I mean, mm. he, partially because of his wanting to keep things very simplistic and minimal. And yeah. so basically all of the Wolfpack videos are recorded on an iPhone on this app called 8mm. And there's cool. these different filters. And the video that you get, the filter is baked in to the whole thing. No kidding. So wow, that's it's amazing. just what you get. And, you know, then it was like, okay, let's use a, a steady cam. And even the visual of the Fearless Flyers, our side project, you know, uh -huh. he, he was very much... Let's put three guitars on stands and let's do, you know, bass, baritone and, and regular, whatever you want to call that, guitar mm. and then a drummer. So it's kind of the three ranges of guitar. So the visual thing definitely is something that Jack as a band leader producer is always very aware of. And it's, it's mm. fun to be a part of. I've learned a lot from working with him. I can absolutely imagine. And so how, how specific is he about how he wants things to be as the leader of, of that group? Is he, you know, is he the kind of guy who says... Okay, it's this exact way. Do you know? Do do what I say and let fit into my structure. Or is he is he open and and sort of conversational about how the thing feels and and how the group can decide what the eventual result is going to feel like and be? He'll normally have a couple ideas and bring them to the table, and we'll start playing. And the thing that's really cool about him is he's got this producer thing where he knows everybody in the band's strengths, and he'll uh -huh. he'll try to do some just slow pitch to each person. It's like, all right, Dart Crush is this thing. Let's give Joe this. All right, Corey's mm. rhythm guitar thing is this. Let's set him up for success in this. And his drumming style versus Theo's drumming style or Woody's composition style or the way that he totally. plays keys. So it's cool to see him have the vision for something, but also try to tee everybody up to win within the situation, which is really fun. That's cool. That's really cool. It's fun. There's a lot of collaboration in the sessions and in the thing because we normally will go in not knowing what we're going to do. Jack will start playing something or sometimes he'll send a little demo and then we just kind of work out the A section, work out the B section, find a form, do maybe two or three takes and we're done. Mm. And that's mm. like the thing. But the our approach also, I wanted to ask you about this because Jack's approach and our approach historically has been very minimalist where mm -hmm. he also, we might have done three takes, but at the end of it, I'll, you know, we'll just get a jump drive that has only take two and we'll airdrop the video from the iPhone to the computer. So 
in one folder, it's the video for the take, and then it's mm-hmm. literally just the tracks. That, and normally it's less than 10 tracks for each song. Mm-hmm. You know, it's DI guitar, DI bass, two mics on the drums, DI whirly, you know, maybe a, an SM57 on the piano or something. He, yeah. he very much wants as little work to do as, or actually in some ways it's more work because you have to figure out how to make the thing happen with a few amount of tracks. From watching some of your session breakdowns, you're like the opposite. You're maxing <laughs> out logics. You know, I can see you on the phone with in Cupertino right now at yelling at Apple for not giving you enough tracks to do your Right, right, right. No, I, I am most definitely a maximalist. Uh, I, I've always embraced that. I think part of that is a symptom of working alone for my whole life, you know? And I say working alone for my whole life. I've recently done so much collaboration, but I think that my my kind of space and the world that I built as a teenager, or as, a, as a boy, literally in this chair, in this room, yeah, was one where I would play and I would lay my materials out as I was as I was conceiving them and thinking them and everything would be welcome in the canvas. And so I'd pour into logic all of these ideas. And then the challenge would be, okay, how do I get this to make some kind of sense if I want to make sense? And sometimes I don't. Yeah. Know? But if I do, then I think it's it, it's always important uh, for me, and it always has been important to let everything sort of come out at first before I decide what that process is and, and, and what it's going to be. And so in some ways, the, the, the difference between the approaches comes almost about when you give the freedom in the process. Because mm. I think for me, there's a, a, a certain amount of, sort of concentration discipline that comes with all of the, the kind of careful sculpting and the decision making that comes from all those raw materials after they've been recorded. But I guess a, a valid way of doing it is also to have all of those raw materials going around in your head all day long and then decide what you want to do with them and then have that decision making come out as you as you record, you know, as you lay those foundations down and that result is born. And and to be honest, I I, I love looking at it from both of those different approaches. And I think, yeah, one of the things about working with other people, which I'm, I'm learning now actually in, in my sort of life and career, which is really joyful actually, is that giving somebody this infinite space to work with doesn't always help. It depends on the person. So sometimes people just love and relish this unlimited space, this unlimited canvas. And, and other people like being very precise or being given very precise instructions, which is one of the reasons I was so interested to hear, you know, what, what you guys, what, what your process looked like within that. But, you know, I, I think for me, the interesting thing is thinking, well, if, if you're working with infinity, which in some ways you always are when you sit down to create something, of course. Uh, to, to, to a point, it's like, what do you, you know, what do you choose to do with that? And how you choose to, to work with that, I think is telling of who you are and how you are and, and also what kind of music you love. You know, I think that one of the one of the really interesting things for me has been talking to musicians and collaborators who have ingested a lot of the same music that I have ingested throughout their lives as children, as teenagers. But then it gets it it, al- it alchemizes and comes out in a completely different way from from me, which I think is so cool and so interesting. So you know, me and say for example Daniel Caesar both really love Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. But what Daniel hears in Stevie and what comes out of Stevie in Daniel is so different from what comes out of Stevie in me. And I, I love that. I love that it's possible to, to to kind of sponge in this world of music. And obviously now you can listen to so much music to, to, to sponge in all these forces. And then when you turn the tap on and how you turn the tap on, that that is that's new every time and it's fresh every time. But each person has their own kind of dialect of what has made sense to them in what they've heard and what resonates with them. And I think that's what that's what keeps music as, as a scene so fresh. I love that approach. When you were growing up playing everything yourself, do you feel like that was an advantage or a disadvantage to what you're doing now where you're starting to collaborate more? Or do you feel like it was the, 
I guess the two parts of that are, did you feel like it gave you the amount of space you needed to figure out your thing? Or do you feel like you missed out on how to communicate with a band member or like, this is the only drummer in my town, so we had to figure out how to make it work? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's an interesting question. I mean, one thing I'll say is, I, I did a lot of jamming with with friends and people and musicians and family members and stuff throughout my sort of musical okay, upbringing. Yeah. But that was happening sort of in in tandem, uh, like as a as a tangent to this world that I was I was building on my own. And so, I think the cool thing was you know going into school and thinking you know okay I've got a guitarist, a bass player, and drummer and a keys player. Okay, like let's let's get as filthy as possible with with getting this band to feel good to work it to write music for it and with it and you know i had these these three friends misha and uh, matt and umar and and we used to sit and and every monday night we'd write and jam and and create stuff together it was a super cool time and i was basically the, the drummer in the band weirdly enough that was like my thing but i would i sort of wander around the room as as all of us did really and, and have a go at all the instruments and it was an interesting experiment there to sort of to be aware of how the music felt from all these different angles and all those perspectives for me were educational and when i came into this space to make music i i figured well okay i kind of know how it feels to be the bass player kind of how it feels to be the drummer mm. kind of how it feels to be the the singer or the or the guitarist, I mean, to a point, I'm not really a, a, a guitarist. I think for me, the, the interesting thing was examining the perspectives of music from this space, from my solo space. And obviously, when you listen to music, you can listen to it from all these different perspectives too. You know, mm -hmm. what's the harmony doing? What's the melody doing? What's the groove doing? And why is the pocket feel deeper here than it does here? Why is opening the hi-hat on the offbeats make it feel like you want to stomp your feet? And, and why does delaying the, the, the offbeats make it feel like it's lilting and it feel like it has a weird pocket? And, and why, is that, why does that work in samba but not work in techno? You know, mm -hmm. all these kinds of experiments. I used to take those things from my listening space. And some, sometimes that was a social listening space. And I take that into this room, sit down with the materials in Logic and start nudging them around and figuring out what made me feel cool and what was funky and what wasn't funky. And that process for me was really just a, it was specific to, to my world. You know, I don't think it necessarily would have worked for, for, for everybody. And I think I've definitely realized, especially in the last couple of years, touring with other musicians, that the kind of infinite solo space makes sense for some things and not for others. And so a real challenge for me was just letting go of the awareness of all the perspectives live, because I can't, you know, I can't just jam if I'm thinking about what the bass is doing to the drums and I'm not playing the bass or the drums, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's a bit paralyzing. So, so for me, I think, you know, it's been fun and difficult, but really important, I think at this point in my life, just to to kind of divorce myself from all of that, all of that awareness and, and, and having control over those different elements and sort of let them go and see where things fall. And that's something really, really special. And it's something that honestly, strangely, I'm discovering quite late in my kind of creation process. I, I can imagine also for you as somebody who layers so much of your own vocals, when you're working with other singers, <laughs> I have friends with perfect pitch that are always like, oh, okay, are we singing flat today? All right, well we're singing flat today. And you know, they, mm -hmm. they have to adjust their mind and almost not get bitter about it. Cause you could nitpick so much in so many situations as somebody who knows how to play bass, as somebody who knows how to, it's like, uh, no, that harmony line, it, it's not a major skill. You gotta, it's pentatonic, mm. you know, or whatever. I, I can imagine that being somewhat difficult, but the the art of being able to let go mm. is, is... I think, you know, it's it's also the art of being able to take what you get, and this is both in a, like in a live improvising scenario and also in a 
in a stop time composition scenario or, or a, a, a collaboratory scenario, but being able to take what you get and and roll with it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've loved doing, you know, say for example, there's a you know a, a note which is flat. It's like that note is welcome in harmony. Like you can you can harmonize a note which is flat or sharp or bendy or growly or or whatever that's not perfectly in tune and that that's welcome and and you can you can roll with it and i think for me on on the one hand there's the acceptance that comes with something not being the way that you imagine it which is wonderful and on the other side there's the stretching of the awareness to include it Mm. you know so it might be like okay i've got a groove that goes right that sounds late to me yeah right way late and so okay <laughs> yeah you can think like all right i'm i'm going to let that be late like i get it it's late i'm going to let it go i'm going to stop being aware of it altogether i'm just going to tune it out you know that's one approach or there's the approach that says okay so is that is that late from that beat or is it early from that beat you know and so which gravity is it is it pertaining to and how can i how can i enjoy that and then there's a thing is it is it just in its own precise you know position you know whatever and so how grid-based your understanding is is it's it's a case-by-case basis thing i guess for me but obviously live you know playing music live i'm not about to stop the band and say whoa yeah why is this no you know 14 cents flat or you know 17 cents sharp and stuff like that even though my brain is giving me those numbers sometimes because i know that the kind of gesture and the degree of the gesture is is in a different place from from say in the recording environment but you know you mentioned work, working with singers i think the interesting thing that's blown my mind recently is how in tune is different depending on where you live mm. and and what you listen to say for example a, a seventh degree of a scale uh, to us is is quite quite particular you know mm-hmm. exactly where it's placed you you go that makes sense to us but if you if you wander east then it, it doesn't take that many thousands of kilometers to get to the point where is the correct seventh, right? A really flat seventh. Yeah. And weirdly, like if you sing a note in a cathedral or you or you explore the harmonic series and you've got the, all the overtones available, then the seventh overtone is super flat. And so I think I've I've loved the idea of thinking that, you know, it, it's it's not just that, you know, one particular awareness only works for one particular set of things, like, you know, perfect pitch people saying, oh, that's not a note, and that's too sharp, or that's too flat. Yeah. It, you know, like, it's not just that. It's also realizing that even even what is flat and sharp is, is completely, it's something that's open to interpretation. And and you you can you can bend with that and you can roll with that and you can enjoy being stretched with that. That's interesting to me. I run into that exact thing as a rhythm guitar guy. I bet. Rhythm guitar is is where I love to just be at home. I love, that's like my thing, I guess. The guitar in general is just kind of not in tune. Even when it's in tune, it's not really in tune. And then when you put, put your fingers on frets, it's kind of, oh, like this one's pressing a little hard so it's a little sharp sharp yeah you know and it gets this thing and then my role in a band scenario normally i'm listening to lock in with the bass player lock my subdivision in with the hi-hat and then the big beats on the the kicks and the snares and kind of navigate where to place myself and kind of Hmm. compromise my own okay i see because i'm i'm somebody who kind of sees the grid go by I'm very visual with the grid mm-hmm. and how I mm-hmm. how I feel time that helps me to get it locked in and maybe that's from drumline days or something. Interesting. Oh yeah, cool. Makes sense. For me, I'm always negotiating in my head the intonation of my guitar. I normally let that I don't know, it's like I can tell it's kind of out of tune, but I like it. It's it's fine. It's cool. Yeah. It's it's a vibe. Yeah. 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 And the the way that a certain band 
locks together, the way that the rhythms lock with the drums, that kind of defines the sound of a band. And I've enjoyed gathering that and kind of honing that into the way the groove feels with Wolfpack versus my own project or Fearless Flyers when Nate Smith is drumming. You know, it's yeah. paying attention to different things. It, it, all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is the sound of the groove of the band. It's it's not just the members and everything, but it's also where everybody's feeling and placing and compromising the time and the subdivision. Oh, totally. Yeah, that, that, all that stuff is magical. So, so would you say that in your mind, there's a sort of hierarchy between all the different elements of music that you have control over. And also you don't have control over every ingredient, sure. but you know, one of those is where you place time. Mm-hmm. One of those is where you place tuning. And one of those is where you, you know, like I suppose where you place ad-libs, like where you'll stretch out and fill or whatever. Do you feel like that hierarchy is set and universal in general? Or do you feel like that changes depending on who you're playing with? Definitely changes depending on who I'm playing with, because especially somebody in the rhythmic world I am seeing where everybody else, I kind of think of two realms within that. Who's playing parts or like uh, looping patterns and who's kind of the floater. If there's too much floating going around, I'm just going to lock into a pattern and I'm going to try to anchor the thing and I'm going to play in a way that's like cueing to where somebody might be floating to kind of pull it in to have some sense of grounding yeah but if it's kind of a bunch of pattern based things or even i find myself when i'm when i'm writing in logic and i just have a loop up that's like a two-bar loop Mm. i will end up playing more ad libby than when i'm playing with a drummer because the drummer is automatically gonna add in maybe yeah 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 so i'm gonna try to find where they're filling the spaces and I'm going to stay out of that. Or I'll kind of feel like, oh, are they always doing a one and two and thing? Should I accent that? Or maybe I do the three and four and, or I go the one and a two and a, you know, so yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, there's different ways. So, you know, so the rhythm can feel like it's cascading between the parts or it can feel like it's locking between the parts. It definitely changes band to band and, and also just what my role in the band is. Oh, totally. Yeah. I I love how like open-minded you are about that. And also just how consciously aware you are of kind of being as, as effective and helpful to others as possible. And I really think, I think you really feel that listening to you play. It's this, this sense you get that you're, you're part of all the different band members vocabulary. You know, you're a drummer and you're a bass player and you're a lead player, but you're also a harmonist. And so I think it's, it's cool to hear you talk about that in a way where you can adapt as you go and you can fill in the spaces that are there for you and you know if if no one's being the drummer then you can be the drummer and yeah. if there's a drummer then 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 you can be the ad lib or you can be someone who fights the drummer and, and and all that stuff and i'm interested how conscious your kind of experience of music is as a band member with the kind of rhythmic interplay between guitar bass and drums because i guess for, for a lot of people a lot of musicians and also a lot of listeners to to music that's based in the rhythm section that interplay is interesting and it's really formative and I guess my question to you is how how conscious is that for you? You know, if say bass player is right on the back of the drummer, do you think okay, I'm going to I'm going to split the difference. I'm going to go in the middle. Or do you think I'm going to go where the bass player is? I'm going to go where the drummer is. I'm going to fight both of them and go behind everyone or you know, are these things you think about fully consciously or are the things that you sometimes think about consciously and other times you just let yourself go or is it really much more intuitive for you? I think it depends on what the parts are that the bass player is playing and what mm. I'm playing. So if the, the simple answer would be, I'm going to follow the bass player if what my role is, is more similar to the bass player. So that uh, way we sense. feel like violin one and violin two in the mm. orchestra. 
and the brass section's doing their thing, but we're the strings, yeah, yeah. you know? So sometimes I'll think of that. <laughs> but if my part as a, you know, if the violins are doing one thing and the cello part is actually more like the low brass, well, then it makes more sense for the low brass to lock with the cello. I kind of think in those terms a lot of times, even just as a rhythm section player. So if my part is I'm definitely going to go more with the drummer. But if my part is kind of locking with the bass, I'm yeah. going to want to feel where, I, I mean, I, I just want it to line up right with the bass so that way we're in this thing together, you know, right in the in the lane driving next to the drummer. And, <laughs> yeah. But if I well have put. a role that's a little more like bongos or tambourine, because sometimes that's, I think of my good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or even. Yeah, no, absolutely. If I'm in that realm, I can kind of float between the two, but I am listening more for the strong beats because I want the mm. strong beats to lock. Sometimes, I, I, maybe you can speak into this because I know that your awareness of swing percentage and your awareness of subdivision and where the gravity is either on the, the mm. downbeat or the E 16th. Sometimes you hear people trying to do the Chris Dave, Nate Smith, Quest Love, Pino thing. Yeah. Where there's like one person's on, one person's behind. And sometimes, you know, you have the college version where it's like, <laughs> ah, I, I get what you're trying to do, but now you're all just dragging. Like it doesn't work. Right, yeah. So right, what, right. because you've analyzed so mat so much of that and your awareness of that and your consciousness of that is so high. What do you think makes that work and not work? Like when and when does it when does it work and when doesn't it? So you listen to a a, a band like you know, D with Questlove and Pino, right? And you think, well, what, yeah, what makes that the kind of holy grail for being yeah. on the back of the beat, but it not falling behind? You know, I think it, I think it needs to come from, uh, it needs to come from your humanity. It needs to come from who you are. Questlove's not going to slow down. He's content being exactly where he is on the, in in time. He's, he's not going to listen to Pino and think, oh, okay, I'll I'll pander to that, you know, or, yeah. or whatever. And I don't think Pino's thinking that intuition. I think comes from who they are as people and. It's it's you can analyze it to a point in post and you think, oh, you know, Pino's exactly whatever it is, four tenths of a beat behind. Yeah. <laughs> but, but those guys aren't thinking in, in that way. They're, yeah. they're interacting. It's, it's as you say, the interplay between the different ingredients in every band is going to be slightly different. And so I find bands most satisfying to listen to in terms of time and, and otherwise when someone's being themselves in the band. And I know that kind of sounds abstract, but. You know, some some drummers play sloppy, and that's what makes them amazing. Yeah. Like, do, do you know this this band called Dehuf? I don't. Oh man, it's so killing. They're they're a San Francisco based uh, group, and they have this incredible singer who seems, sings really deadpan. Okay. Um, but then and then you've got this energy, this kind of distorted energy, this like you know organized chaos energy, with with the drums and and, and the bass and the guitar, and they often do phrases in six like six four phrases mm. like and these funny kind of like and odd things you know things you don't hear that much and greg the drummer is, is kind of a genius and and he'll he'll speed up or slow down the band and you can feel him as a person like speeding mm. up and slowing down his excitement levels throughout the track so it will be like <laughs> and the band somehow 
has evolved to like follow that really beautifully yeah. and really closely. But you can hear like their friendship, you can hear their interaction, you can hear the impatience of of one thing, push the other thing to a place and then put the other person pulling them back and yeah. vice versa. I feel like you can hear this in Miles, with Miles too. You know, Miles' classic quintets and stuff. You can hear, you know, Tony rushing and pushing and thinking like, I don't like this, yeah. or I like this. And then Herbie being real, like real patient yeah. with with Tony or, or, or whatever. You can hear the pushing and pulling of the people in the band. And to me, that is really hard to detect in the era that is led by technology because yeah. it's so tempting to say, okay, quantize or, okay, I'll auto-tune, I'll, I'll round it, I'll, you know, round everything to the nearest beat or semitone or whatever it happens to be. And I think that there's a real uniqueness that happens when people play live. Um, and this is something I really hear within the Wolf guys, um, you included, obviously, is, is just, it's being able to lock into something that feels like real life rather than feeling like click track or feeling like it's really, really locked in. It feels like it's happening before your eyes and before your ears. And I think when people do that and they interact with each other in that way rhythmically, you can feel the difference massively. And so a lot of the kind of college version of of Diller's you know, slug groove or whatever, it, it comes when there's a click track turned on mm. and it's like... And it's this funny thing where it's like, okay, well, all I hear him doing is dragging the hi-hat behind and so that's what I'm going to do. But it doesn't it doesn't work like that. I actually have, I have an interesting example, Dilla. Yeah. This is not people playing together. This is someone who sat down and consciously kind of put this t- together. Yeah. Like it's a it's a conscious choice. And like the tambourine is is on is is right on the back of the beat, right? You hear the tambourine going And then you got the kick drum is in front of the beat going like yeah. that. And then the snare to me is right in the middle. It's just so interesting. So I think some of the best grooves are things where things are fighting each other, you know? Mm. And one of the one of the most common kind of misunderstandings that I tend to hear when I hear people try and be sluggy is that everyone's slugging in the same direction at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so you know you'll have the hi-hat going and the bass was going dum 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 and the key was and it's like that's that's not the, the, the that's the kind of mismajesty yeah. of it, it, if you like, because what makes it cool is that one person does one thing in one direction, and then the other person does something in a different direction. You know, so it might be the bass player's going, right on the back, and but then you've got hi hat right on the very front. Yeah, you know, and that is really exciting. And sometimes the snare is early. And sometimes the hi hat is late. That's another under- misunderstanding. I think sometimes people sometimes get wrong is that is different from yeah, you know. And I think honestly, I think a lot of these decisions are kind of unconscious, but they come from someone's personality and how much Pino is able to pull on the back of the beat to quest consistency or inconsistency at, at times too. It, it kind of depends on how he's feeling on that day, you know? And yeah. and all those dynamics, they can't be theorized. Like you can't sit and think, oh, this is exactly why this is killing. And and it's that thing, oh, there's a, there's a great quote that it's about, it's about humor and it's about f- frogs. <laughs> and it's a, it's a quote by, um, uh, basically, yeah, the, the quote is by this amazing guy, E.B. White. I don't know if this is the exact quote, but it says, yeah, look, it's like, what happens when you dissect humor? Here we go. Hum- humor can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process. That's the idea. Mm. Um, I can't That's find the, the the actual quote, but it's like yeah, you can take a, you can take it apart. You can say, oh, this is how, this is why it works. Oh, the hi hats late. Oh, the bass is uh, is late. Or the kicks early. Or the vocals are la- whatever. 
But that's not what makes it magical. I think what makes it magical is the person behind it, you know? And yeah. if you listen to some, someone like Jay Diller, his kind of sensibility, it's so it's so Jay Diller, you know, but it can be really inconsistent. Yeah. And so I think that's partly what makes it great is is the, the human inconsistencies that arise when when either you're sitting down and you're conceiving something that is imperfect and you're, you're not striving to be perfect or you're playing with musicians where inevitably it won't be perfect and and how much you choose to roll with that kind of dictates who, who you are in, in some ways. That's something that I've learned a lot with playing more. In Wolfpack, you know, Jack doesn't want to edit anything. And sometimes mm. he'll pick a take where I'm like, oh, come on, man, just let me punch in the bridge. He's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, let All it right, be, fine, let it be. whatever. It's good. And then in the end, maybe I'm one of four people in the world that cares. <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> and it's yeah. just like, it would take away from it if everybody said, all right, let me just punch this or let me edit this. Let me, blah, blah, blah. I didn't get the right cut. The, vi- it's like, ah, the vibe it's- is gone. Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. I want to talk about, you have Jesse volumes one, two, and three out, and mm-hmm. they each have a different sound. And Jesse three to me is really fun because you kind of did a little more of a funky approach, a little more of yeah. a funk thing, but the sound of them is very different. What I noticed is, what I love the most about volume three is that the way you placed the music, it's so upfront in your face. The way that I like my funk thing is like right on my, I, I, when I tell people like, oh yeah, I want it to be in your face. Like, all right, I'm just going to put a little room on it. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> do negative room. Like, do the transient designer where you take out everything. Like, yeah, it, I love, I do that all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where it's like, I, I like my stuff to be so far in your face. It's like mm. you wouldn't even recognize the Mona Lisa if you were looking at it. You're standing that close. And I yeah. think some of your, <laughs> some of your Jesse volume three has a similar thing where it feels like it's just so right here. And I love, it's so close. I love oh, that man. sound. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, it was it was always when I was most excited about sonically because it was the first time I wasn't trying to adhere to being in a space, you know. So so the the idea with Jesse was, you know, you got these four volumes, volume one, two, three, and four, and they're each a different like physical space. Um, I, I think you you've you really picked up on this well, but but basically volume one is is that is a is a colossal big acoustic space, right? Orchestra. So you got this expansive kind of ravaging hall, like like the dawn. Yeah, everything's light. Everything's coming out. It's it's full. It's it's huge. It's incandescent. You know, volume two is acoustic still, but it's a smaller space. So I guess more based on folk music and and th- things that feel slightly smaller, closer together, and it's cozier. And but it it feels like you're in you know you you're you're in a room to a point. It feels yeah. like it's you know it's it's happening before your eyes, but it's no longer cavernous. It's much more kind of in in your hand ha- handmade volume three was always going to be the the kind of negative space album and that's exciting because i'm no longer thinking where in the room do i want to place these sounds i'm thinking like where in the mind do i want to place these sounds yeah and that gets exciting you know because then it's like whoa i can put this as you say so so close you, you don't even know what it is because it's so close and around you as well and yeah I got really into into binaural mixing on on this record too. So you got you know things that go beyond stereo. You know things yeah. that are you know sixty four plus panned. <laughs> so you know and and that's that's just a crazy axis to think about. And you know I spent a lot of the last ten years examining uh, you know lots of different axes of of music. And you got the harmonic axis and that all that gravity. You got the, the 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 rhythmic axis as we've been talking about with you know how delayed things are, how swung things are, all this stuff. And you know I've got my own sort of weird approach to all that stuff. But but the axis of sound is honestly I think it's one that people don't think actively enough about, especially in 21st century and and in education as well. You know mm-hmm. I think people aren't taught about about how much power 
there is when you put sonics in, in the hands of musicians because musicians play music right and that's what they're taught to do so yeah. all right I'll, I'll master my instrument i'll go on stage I'll, I'll play my instrument and and that feels good but but recording honestly recording music is a completely different art form and like how the thing feels is so potent and i think you know you can have so much control over someone's experience now in yeah and how something feels sonically so with volume three I've got to say I was so grateful for this bonus five months I was gifted out of thin air because of but you know but because of the pandemic because I was going to go on tour in March and the album was basically in the bag or I thought it was in the bag and my tour got cancelled about four days before we embarked on the trip and so I thought well okay I'm not going to finish this album I'm going to give it a little bit more time and so what that time enabled me to do was to really mix it like actually really mix it not just record it and leave it there as I recorded it and yeah. you know I think there's something to be said for the sort of unconscious placement of sound I, I tend to record a lot of my sounds in this room just because I know it so well the the distance away from the mic that I consider it to be loud you know without doing too much post automation it's yeah. like if I want it to be quiet I'll go stand on the other side of the room you know if I want it to be close I'll, I'll eat the microphone as it were and and that's cool for, for the acoustic albums I, I try to keep it a bit like that I mean with with an orchestra there's really not that much you can do with space anyway because you've got the sound of the room but with volume three it was this circus you know I got to really play with like just movement and and taking away space giving something space and and opening out the stereo, you know, like, you know, you think, oh, chorus time, I'm going to add a kick that has more low end. You know, a lot of pop producers do that. They'll yeah. save under 40 hertz for the chorus. And yeah. when the chorus hits, it's like, boom, oh man, I feel, yeah. I feel that, I feel that. Or, you know, it's like, same is true with high end or, you know, drummer plays the, plays with the bell of the ride symbol in the chorus because it's like, whoa, we're expanding, everything's yeah. great. For me, it's like what I didn't realize in production, you know, you can, you can go 20% wider in the chorus. You know, and that's fascinating. If if you've been pretty pretty mono or mono with it with a with a little bit of stereo until the chorus, and then the stereo gets wider in the chorus, it's fascinating stuff. And yeah. I've also got really into into midside compression, which I'd never really got 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 with before. But you know, midside compression being the louder the sound is, the wider the sound is, or vice versa. The louder the sound is, the 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 more mono the sound is. And so you get these you know these these capacities for sounds breathing. You know, where if it's like and on the da, it's like it's wide, and then otherwise it goes in. And if you put just like a tiny bit of that on the master bus, in say I like I like to use ozone. I use ozone ozone nine right now a lot. And if you put a little bit of that on the master in, in like the vintage compressor mode, it really helps it breathe and it stops it feeling digital. And I think one of the brilliant things about the age we're living in now is that you can you can be musical in ways that honestly backtrack twenty years it, they weren't possible. You know you sure. couldn't get things to breathe adaptively with volume in conjunction with with stereo width but yeah. but now you can do that and and so i think it's fun to to play with those you know play with those axes and then obviously try not to overthink them too much when you're actually in the music making process i, I think that's really great i'm gonna try that my thing that i've been using lately is the mono below 100 hertz or whatever sometimes mm, i'll do that mm -hmm. there's a good hertz plugin where i do that and it just kind of tightens up the low just as kind of a quick master bus throw it on you know thing. yeah that's that's such a good point and i often forget that because you know you don't need it to be stereo under 100 hertz why would you need it to be like one thing's on the left one thing's on the right unless it's like a crazy panning escapade or something yeah I, I'm, I'm with you man like that's a that's a good one i should i should write that down i think <laughs> yeah i use the good hertz uh, I think it's just mid side is the right. name of the plugin. I mean, there's a lot of plugins that do it, but I use the good Hertz yeah. one. Oh, I love it. Yeah, and it's crazy with mid side because you can, you know, you can say, okay, I'm gonna, 
I'm going to make something wider as it gets louder, but only between 2 and 4K. Yeah. And then it's like a certain bit of it starts breathing. It's like, whoa, I didn't realize, like, I didn't realize there was this, That's cool. this aspect of the sound. It's crazy. And, you know, honestly, I've learned, I've learned so much in the, in the past year, just sort of getting us into these sounds with this volume, with, with, with volume three as possible. And, you know, it, it, yeah, it makes me listen back to older things I've made and be like, man, I wish I'd known about yeah. <laughs> yeah, X, Y, Z when I, when I did this, you know. Do you feel like you'll ever, because you clearly are a very good producer. Do you feel like you're going to produce for other people or are you just continuing to make your own thing? I don't know, man. I don't know where I'll, where I'll be led. But one thing I'll say, and I don't know if you experienced the same thing, but I'm really... um. I'm really liberated working on things that aren't me. <laughs> yeah. Because when you're working on something, when I'm working on something that, that's for me, for Jacob Collier, you know, I've got my own preconceptions about what the hell that means. And and I've got my idea about what other people think that means. And then I've got the things I don't like about it and the things I love about it and things I want to change, things I want to do more of. But when I, when I work with someone else or for somebody else for their thing, all that stuff goes out the window and it's like, okay, let's just make some music. You know, yeah. like what feels good now, today? And that renders my skills... I think far with far less ego, you know, it's mm. like you can park that whole side of things and just be like, all right, I'm a painter. Here's a canvas. What do you want to make? And and somehow there's a there's a revelation that, that, that comes from that. And, you know, I think doing something for yourself is, is really important. I think it it's, you know, facing up to who you are yeah. and what you stand for in your aesthetics. Like that's a huge part of being a musician and, and an artist. But I think every now and then I, I'm reminded of of the kind of freedom that that comes from not having to do something for yourself or even not having to do something for a reason. You know, I've got into this thing recently where I've been I've been real I've been doing this sort of like ideas relay with a friend of mine. And we had a conversation where we were talking about, you know, just sort of getting getting blocked creatively. Uh, especially once well, I like I've released four albums right at this point and and that's so much music. And I feel like there's there's all these ideas I've got of who I am and all that stuff. And and so now starting something is actually difficult because mm. it's like I have to get myself into a situation where I'm just making it and I'm not thinking how does this fit into this quadruple album puzzle or into yeah. this great big big plan whatever and so what, what I've been doing with, with this friend of mine is spending half an hour putting something down sending it to him he spends half an hour sends it back to me I send half spend half an hour you know send it back to him and it's weird but it's fascinating and it's it's beautiful because it brings things out of you that, that you know that you you would never expect. And so I would imagine at some point, um, you know, wanting to sort of endorse that process more um, and working with others in these kind of untethered scenarios and, and you know, unexpected ways. But but honestly, I, I don't know what the next few years are going to bring at all. And I think it's important that I don't make too many solid plans in the sense that, you know, I know I want to be this or or travel here or work with this exact person. I think it's it's a nice predicament to leave all these things unknown, but to leave as many doors open as possible. All right, this is some good conversation. I got to remind you, though, have you guys not gone to that Neural DSP website yet? You got to go check it out. Use that 30% off coupon, Wong. That's my last name. And while you're there, check out the Archetype Corey Wong plugin. I guarantee you, if you are looking for good, clean, or edge of breakup tones, this is the plugin for you. There's three different amps, a pedal board, EQ, three different cabs. Come on! You can use it live. You can use it in the studio. There's that 14-day free trial. Check out all the plugins and let me know which one's your favorite. Do you feel like you found your thing with this four-volume series, or do you feel like you're still discovering it and this series is part of that? I would say the latter. I would say that almost one of the reasons I did this project is so that when I finished the project, I could get started on my career. <laughs> mm. Because, you know, I wanted to give all of my different 
tastes, like every every facet of music I've ever loved or enjoyed, I, I wanted to, to give it a shot. You know, whether it's Ganawa music from the streets of Morocco or Malian music with Umu Sangari, this in incredible African singer, or, you know, or Leanne Le Havas, the, the softly silken R&B thing, or Tadola sign, you know, the, the kind of, the, the epic transcendent kind of like autotune pop vocal thing, or yeah, or Kimbra, you know, who we were talking about earlier on, or, or all these different people. These are these are worlds, these are rooms in my imagination. I wanted to go in there and spend time with them and sort of plant all these seeds. I want to, I want to plant every possible seed so that after volume four comes out, I mean, honestly, I don't know how it's going to feel, but I think the fun thing is going to be like, so, so now what do I want to do? You know, mm. now I've kind of ascertained the basics for the world of music like what what on earth do I want to do now and I think that's the question I won't know the answer to until I'm out of the woods on this thing I think that's really exciting and as a fan of your music I'm excited to see where that grows that's going to be really fun oh thanks yeah, yeah cheers that volume one you did the orchestra was Metropole Orchestra. you and I, I Metropole Orchestra. yeah I did a album with them and I did you did that's a run of right. shows with them it was incredible they're so fun to work with I completely agree. I mean, yeah, that, the record you did now is coming back to me. It's just so killing. Uh, what I love about that or that orchestra particularly is, and I don't know if you found this, but they can straddle so effortlessly these different spaces, right? They can do the epic classical thing. They can do the the jazz thing or the pop thing or the dance thing or the pocket thing, you know. Yeah. Th there's so many different ways that they're comfortable with making music. Yeah, how, how did it feel to you to, to sit on top of that as a conglomerate of musicians and just play? My approach was going to either be, all right, I'm going into this thing, head down, I want you guys to play the music like, like I do it and like my <laughs> band does it. Or, all right, let's take a look at what you guys do best hmm. and how can we showcase that within my music and let me showcase the way that I play along with you guys. And that was really fun because what it did is it created it created more of a collaborative environment where they sounded very much like them, but my music was brought to a whole new level and a whole new mm. life. Some of my music somehow just inherently sounds kind of like TV music for whatever reason. <laughs> Interesting. And they, well, yeah, it, it definitely has that 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 kind of cinematic axis where it scales to this like broad. You know, you see mountains, you see road, yeah. you know, railways, and all. I, I I love that. I love that that aspect of of what you do. It's visual. Yeah. And and that's where I get a lot of my inspiration for things too. So it was fun to be able to bring that to life in a completely different way, especially with that many people and those kind of instruments where it's like, okay, this is the synthesizer part, but the brass are playing it and the brass mm, can yeah. enhance different things. And, you know, it's not five fingers playing this part. It's eight different people or whatever. Yeah. And it was really cool to just experience oh, it's, that. Uh, it's, it's amazing. This is a question I've been asking myself recently, but do you think there's a danger in being responsible for extracting somebody's strength for them in collaboration? I think part of collaboration, why we would pick the people we collaborate with is there's something about them that sparks a creative interest or a certain response that we want to bring out in our own music, at least for me. So mm. like when I'm working with Joe Satriani, my idea of what he brings to the table, I'm going to leave the spaces for that, but I'm going to let him interpret how to fill those spaces. So mm. here's my interpretation of how you would play a lead guitar thing in this. And then he comes in and it's he doesn't have any like, I want you to do this exact thing. He just can 
paint the way that he wants to paint on yeah. the part of the canvas that I've left for him, but that we've also kind of agreed on the thing. Or like yeah, totally, totally. working with Kimbra, I had basically a rhythm track, a rhythm section track done and was like, hey, I think this would be, what's your vibe? What are you feeling on this? I, I, I love the way you produce, the way you write. And she just sent a voice memo back, kind of riffing nonsense yeah. over it just for melodic and phrasing Brilliant. ideas. And I then love it was, when she does that. Yeah, and <laughs> then it was brilliant. just back and forth. And then it's like, ah, this the chorus feels like it needs to get go to a different place. It's like, okay, scratch what's on the chorus. Let's add this thing in. Oh, yeah, 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 this. Uh, is this too cheesy? No, no, no. Actually, it, it fits exactly right if I do this right. melody, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for me, when I'm working with collaborators or looking for collaborators, it's a different perspective or it's something where, or if I'm asked to collaborate with somebody, I normally get an I I have a pretty good idea of what they know me for or what they'd mm. be looking for from me. And unless they say something very specific, I'll interpret their reason for bringing me in and go from there. Like a lot of artists will have yeah. a guitar player. Why didn't they use their guitar player and why did they bring me in? Okay, what do they think? What do they want me to be able to add to their song to be able to enhance it? And so how do you avoid being, how do you avoid kind of self-characterizing um, in, in, in the sense that you, if you, if you operate in that way where you're, you're, you're doing the thing that people know you for enough times in your career for you to kind of propel it forwards, how do you, how do you stop being an endless recycling of your own vocabulary? Because this is something that I, I think about and I think is, is interesting and it's a struggle sometimes too. Yeah. Like, what are your solutions for? I, I, I guess not being a kind of a kind of yeah, like a a self fulfilling prophecy, as it were. Well, I feel like I've spent a lot of time developing my caricature. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, and I think even within Wolfpack, we are kind of like this cartoon where I'm the striped shirt guy and ryth rhythmic strat guy, and Theo's the guy that wears tank tops and he's all over and he's like moving from every other instrument. And Joe Dart's cool, calm, collected head bob. Uh -huh wearing all navy blue and got the sunglasses on. Woody's the guy who does bird watching and writes really interesting harmonic and melodic things. And, you know, there, I think everybody in the band has a caricature to a certain extent that we've, I guess, inadvertently created for ourselves. So but, founded, yeah, interesting. Yeah, but that is a good question. I think for me, part of what I've tried to do is showcase the depth of my musicality beyond just guitar beyond yeah. just writing, beyond just being a producer. My role in Wolfpack is different than my role in the Fearless Flyers, which is also different than my role in Corey Wong, the artist. Yeah, and, different nuances for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then within my own Corey Wong thing, kind of like you're doing with your music, I'm exploring different spaces in front of my audience. So whether it means doing kind of like a new agey, meditative, contemplative album with John Batiste, yeah, that's yeah. gonna showcase a different thing whether it be an acoustic album that's kind of campfire with a string section, I want to be able to do that. So at least there's something to point to that shows that I'm not one dimensional. Exists within that sphere. Yeah, no, totally. I, I, I think you, you're doing a, a tremendous job at that too. And it's something I'm, I'm almost obsessive about not, be, not becoming a caricature within, within styles or within my own thing. It's like, I have these sort of, these sort of creative, I put down specific kind of, um, I, I suppose you could call them inverters, like choice inverters mm -hmm. in a process where it's like, what would I not do here? Mm. What would Jacob Collier not do next? Well, let's do that. <laughs> yeah. And let's see where that leads me. And I, I do that. I do that a lot. And I think it's, 
sometimes it's rubbish, like so bad. And I, I sometimes I end up falling onto things that I think, oh, well, I would do that, I would, or what do whatever. But I think the thing I'm finding, which is really interesting, is no matter how many times you invert your choices or you know, avoid the thing you've done before. Because I think a lot of musicians grow in this way. You think, okay, well, I've done this before. How would I do it differently next time? Or I've told this joke before. How can I tell this joke in a slightly new way the next time I tell it? You know, this is how language evolves. This is how stories evolve and, and you know, from generations to, to, to generation. But I think the interesting thing is that, you know, your DNA, the, the, the Corey Wong DNA or the Jacob Collier DNA, like these are so distinctive no matter what you do yeah because it's who you are and and so you know yeah if you're playing acoustic if you're playing electric if you're playing rhythm if you're playing melodic if you're arranging for orchestra if you're singing whatever you know what i mean it's like there's a there's a part of you that only you can do and i i, I often think of you know being an artist is is stepping up to, to the responsibility of the fact that you are the only person in the in the universe who can do what you do the way you do it you know yes. and so i find stretching that really interesting because i think at first i was afraid oh what if i lose my sound you know if i start doing electronic production well, i'm i know i i'm the a cappella guy or i'm the i'm the sort of arranger guy or i'm the singer piano player guy or i'm the whatever happens to be you know jazz head or pop head or you know classic whatever and it's like all these things they're all temporary and and it's important to you know place stepping stones for yourself but i i can specifically remember i guess almost to go back to the beginning of the conversation having done those a cappella arrangements thinking well all right like i've, I've sort of done that I've, I've sort of done that now like i've i've done i've reharmonized i've reharmonized jazz standards to oblivion like <laughs> check you know yeah <laughs> and, and 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 now 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 what else can i do that would that i will be interested in and that will pull me into my process because you know i, I think i'm yeah, as I say, I'm, I'm almost obsessive about growing out of my own space. And the funny thing now is that if someone rolled their eyes, as as many people do, I'm sure, and say, oh, that's so Jacob Collier, that the thing that that will be at this point in my life is not doing any one thing, is doing everything. You know, mm. it's like it's being X and Y and Z all at the same time. And so that was kind of the, the point of this era. The, the point of Jesse was to embrace just how this, this musical language is so universal and so broad. And yeah, there are similarities between, you know, Gnawa or Samba and these 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 musics of the world, which are wonky rhythmically and Diller and Quest and, and whatever, because we can, because there are there are things in common with the way they feel. And I, I love I love drawing parallels and I love building bridges between all these different tastes in my world. I, that brings me a lot of a lot of joy. But I almost think the only way after Jesse to to non caricaturize myself is going to be to do one thing mm. and one thing only you know like a a record of just piano or or yeah. just piano and vocals or whatever and I'm really excited for that I'm excited to to scale the thing down and 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 to to see what comes out when I'm not stretching everything into infinity which I suppose has been my solution to the not to do one thing problem but boy have I learned a lot about myself in the process you know that's really fun to hear that's awesome to hear because I, I love that you are just so transparent with your journey in this thing. You know, for me, watching my favorite artists and the artists that I think are game changers, you see that transparency. You see the change of them in their journey. And that's something I'm trying to emulate, like you're saying as well. Like, I feel like I'm right in the middle of the time. And you might feel like it at the same time, the way that you're talking about, like, give me the Corey Wong thing on this track. It's like, mm. okay, I, people say that to me and I know yeah. what they mean. And they say that yeah. to other guitar players and those guitar players will know what that means. And that's fine exactly. and that's cool. Or if somebody says, oh, I, give me the Jacob Collier thing on this. It's like, okay, stacked harmonies, a lot of, you know, exactly. th this sort of yeah. different thing. Okay, but it's not just stacked harmony. It's different than Beach Boys because it's 
you know, there's different clusters inside and then there might be some other stuff happening. But five years from now, 10 years from now, I think it's going to be fun to to see what that is for any of us that have that thing now. In the same way... I completely agree, yeah. Yeah, in the same way that to transition here a little bit might be like defining what the Quincy Jones thing is. Yeah, And yeah, that yeah, yeah. having different eras and there being so many different parts of his depth musically. So, so that's really fun to see. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the Quincy thing is, is a really good case study for this because, you know, he's at a point in his life... Well, he, he's been at this point in his life for 50 years, but but like you can point to each decade of his career and be like, oh, that was a sound. Oh, that oh, that was a thing. And that to me is super, super interesting because, you know, you have you have a musician who started as an arranger and then segued into band leader and conductor and then segued into producer. And then you had kind of like humanitarian yeah. for a little bit with the real world thing. And then hip hop meets jazz. He opened the doors for that. You know, ha halfway through his career, you've got the kind of like, you know, you've got people pointing at his career as a, a legacy, which is complete, you know, and saying, oh, wow, it's amazing what you've done at age 50, at age 60. But like he was 50 years old and he hadn't even started Thriller. Gosh. I think to me, that's crazy to think about. Like someone with that capacious and courageous a kind of sentiment towards life and music that he perpetually would reimagine himself and, and not be worried about losing people, you know, along the way. And, you know, even if you look at someone like Stravinsky, you know, mm -hmm. you've got these three eras of, of Stravinsky. You know, you've got the kind of the big Russian thing at the beginning where he was doing this crazy experimental work and stuff. And, and you know, then you've got the stuff towards the end of his career, which is which is kind of neoclassical, which is taking things from like 400 years prior, but but inventing them and twisting them in, in, in a way that only he could. And and then it's sandwiched between those two. You've got a really like a, you know, a, a completely different set of, of musical languages too, you know, entering into the kind of semi-serialist stuff. And I, I just find someone like that is so interesting. And I would also say Sting is a good example of this yeah. too. I, I've, I love Sting, man. Like Sting was one of my childhood Incredible. heroes. But you know, you, you look at the police era and then you look at the sort of, you know, the Soul Cages and Ten Summoners Tales and then you look at Brand New Day and Sacred Love and then you look at the lute songs and you look at the musical that he wrote and it's like, wow, that, that guy's really, he's really, he's, he's willing to put his, stick his neck out and, yeah. and do something that people are going to be like, what the hell? I thought you were the guy who write, you know, who wrote... Roxanne, can you just do that again? You yeah. Know? And it's like, he's he's courageous enough to say, you know what, you think the Sting thing is X, but the Sting thing is changing all the time. And I, what I hope for audiences in the 21st century is that audiences will get peaceful with realizing that, you know, you can be 10,000 different things as a human being mm -hmm. or as an artist or as an audience member or as a family member or as someone in a relationship or teacher or student or whatever and having that change and being being peaceful with that changing is is amazing and i think it could be a real a, a real revelation and a relief for artists to not feel like they have to do their thing all the time yeah and i know so many artists who struggle with this you know and that's one of the reasons why i asked you that question because in in some ways you know all young musicians want is for people to be able to say hey can you do the the, the blah 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 thing yeah. and for people to be like oh i know exactly what you mean you know like yeah, yeah if someone said to me you know can can you do cory wong on this track it's like I know exactly what they're talking about, you know, because that is killing. And, and you know, you defined that. But the question is, how do you how do you scale a concept as vivid and iconic as that into something which has many facets? That's such a good question. I guess my other approach to answering that question would be that for me, and I'm curious, I'm going to tell you my answer to th or my different approach to this answer and see if you have a similar thing. But yeah, when I make music, when I make art in general, my guiding light is not, look what I can do. My guiding light mm. is bringing joy and fun to the listener or to whoever's there in the room, 
when people come to my shows, if they leave thinking, wow, that guy's amazing at guitar, whatever, that's fine, that's fun, okay, cool. But the main thing that I want them to do is leave the show thinking, oh my gosh, that was so much fun, that was so joyful. And I think Mm. that guiding principle is something that is obviously not tied to music, it's not tied to an instrument, it's not tied to harmonizing a pentatonic scale using pizzicato style picking with palm muting, or it's not the Prince Nile Rogers guitar thing, whatever. It's so far bigger. The vision is so much bigger than anything like that, that if I use that, if I use that as my guiding light, that can be something that can inspire me through the rest of my life. Is there something like that for you? I love I love that answer. So it's an interesting question. For me, what I've realized is the best service I can do to, to I can give to a room is to be true to my energy at that time. And so in general, I'd say I'm pretty joyous as a human. I'm quite joyous. I'm quite energetic. I'm yeah. quite excitable and in general quite optimistic about the world in general, even though that sounds quite like a weird thing to say in 2020. But I think I think the world's freaking awesome. And so that to one side, I'll be on tour and there'll be days where I'm super, I'm longing to be home. You know, mm-hmm. I'm exhausted. All I'm yearning for is a bit of silence, a bit of peace and quiet. Or there are days where I feel like I haven't been understood that day or I haven't been heard that day. You know, or days where I'm, I feel like I've got too much, I've got too much potential i don't know if you ever feel like this but there are times where i walk on stage and i've, I've just i've just got too much creative potential to, to be to, to be reasonable <laughs> I, i'm just i'm too reactive I, i'm way too reactive it's like i've i've just got this pressure cooker thing where if you give me anything i will have infinite ideas directed at that thing and it, I, I can't contain it and yeah and and other days where i can't think of anything to play i've got no ideas i can't tune into those upper level those natural upper rungs of the ladder is like I, I can feel my way out of this I can't do that and so and so at first when I toured because I, I haven't been touring for that long I've been touring for four years or something having never done gigs before that and I've probably done about 400 gigs or whatever and, and the difference between the first gig and the last gig I did which weirdly now is about a year ago it's really strange to think about that it's it's crazy because I think I started playing thinking okay so the the role of the performer is to is to turn on the light yeah gig audience <laughs> happy Wow. And then and so you, you park whatever you're you're going through to, on one side and you turn it on and everything's good. And to a to a point I think that is that is part of the job. You know, part of the job is like Yeah, yeah you know, I might be having an awful day, I might be having a great day, I might be in love, I might have just gone through a breakup. No matter what I'm going through, I'm gonna put on a good show for you. But yeah. I think that when I go on stage and I can you know, I, I like the verb alchemize but if i when i can alchemize what where i am who i am on that day and i can bring that to a room i always feel and maybe this is just me projecting you know but i always feel like there's a connection that's made in that room that can't be made any other way and so there might be days where i'm not feeling joyful despite being a joyful person in general and if i try to be joyful at that moment man it doesn't work for some reason for me i'm not good at being ingenuine and and if i'm able to be sorrowful in that moment genuinely then my essence of being joyful kind of shines through, I think, more mm. effectively than pretending to be joyful. And that, not for a moment am I saying this is what, you know, this is what, what what you would do. But but to me, I had to go through a process of realizing that performing is not about pretending. Yeah. Performing is about being honest and being who you are at that moment. And that can be really tricky, especially if my mood is, I don't want to communicate with anyone. I don't want to make any eye contact with anyone. I just want to be on my own. I don't want to turn the, any lights on. I want to turn all the lights off. So it's like, instead of coming on stage and thinking, lights are on anyway, yeah. you know, it's like, it's thinking, okay, 
how can I show you that this is my space and how can you be welcome in it nonetheless? And mm. and then I think, then you open the doors to being fearless and and, and saying, I'm prepared to, to put myself on the line. And I'm, I'm prepared to, to take a risk. And I think, I guess to go back and answer the question, if there's something I would hope people feel leaving a gig of mine, it would be that they, that they too can be themselves and they too can be fearless to be who they are at that moment, which changes all the time. Yeah. You know, they too can can let it out. You know, let it out what it let out what it means to be them and articulate it for people because I I don't know for me that that's what keeps me alive, man. Like articulating how I feel in some way, expressing it. You know, putting it on a canvas, putting it into words, putting it into music, putting it into a room. I, that is so that's so important to me. And so I think that hopefully what would come across at, at, at a gig of mine is is people being like, you know what, you know, I I love whether or not I loved that music or I didn't get that music or I'm you know whatever I. I I was riled by it. I hated it. You know, I want to imitate it. I want to, whatever. I, he was so Jacob on that gig, and I respect that. Yeah. And I hope that there's some courage that is that sort of that through osmosis that people would feel like they can be themselves and that it's okay to be themselves, even if that's really mucky or weird or dark or strange or joyous or you know whatever. I, I think for me that that's that's what drives me forwards all the time. And so, you know, I I would share your joyful sentiments in general because. I think that when I'm myself, the kind of average, the average mood is is pretty upbeat, and I think that that's what transmits. But you know, I I find it dangerous to say to myself, just personally, like I'm a this kind of guy, you know, mm. or I'm a I operate within these kinds of terms, or I always tend to blah blah because I I feel like that makes me smaller to a point, even though it's it's difficult because you have to define yourself sometimes. But I feel like saying. I don't know who I am today, but I'm going to go on stage and I'm going to be damn well Jacob Collier today. Yeah. That that to me feels first of all I think authentic and second of all it's actually it's it's more sustainable. That's an incredible answer. And and very respectful for your audience as well and inspiring for other musicians. I think you and I probably both have a high percentage of musicians as our fan base. I think so too. Yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah, fun. Complete, it's cool. I I love it, man. It's it's like it's like when you're how can I put this? If you're if you're telling a I don't know why I always use humor as analogies. I'm realizing this on this uh, on this in the conversation, <laughs> but if you if you tell a joke to someone about something that they know, then it's going to be funnier than if you tell someone a joke about something that they don't know, even if it was funny. Yeah. nonetheless you know and and so you know playing live is not a joke and that's not really what i'm saying but i do think that if there's a common vocabulary in the room on some level even like a common emotional vocabulary which i think increasingly is the, is, is the case for me it's like we're all in this room because we sh- we can share these feelings together mm-hmm. rather than we can share this knowledge together but but knowledge too if you if you come into a room with a set of of understandings then that is really wonderful because it means I don't have to start from zero when I'm expressing myself. Yeah. I can express myself starting from level level five or, or level six um, for, for some people in the room and 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 you know you'll you'll understand what I'm what I'm getting at when I don't play a note. Mm. When I don't play a chord because you know what chord I would have played yeah. had I done the thing that was expected. And so one thing I love to do live and and not non-live is is just to to carefully defy expectation. I know I do this with reharming all the time. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah, reharm, oh, crazy chord, but what if it wasn't the crazy chord you were expecting, but it's a different chord? You know, sometimes the most surprising you can be is just a triad, yeah. but a triad from the opposite side of the spectrum of, of, of harmony. And, and so being unexpected is easy and easier and more powerful when people feel what the other choice would have been had you done it. Mm. But if you have a room fill, filled with no one who's ever heard a note of music before and you're you're on those levels, then it's just going to go over everybody's heads. And so 
the thing I love about my audience so much is, is you know, way, way more than them all being musicians, it's that they all love and listen to music, I think, a lot. You know, a lot of them are really well versed yeah. in what music is and what it means. And and so if I play something that feels princey or something that feels like, like you know, like an, like an English choral Christmas arrangement or something, or if I if I play something that feels real gospel, like it's got like a bunch of diminished, extended diminished chords, or or, or if, if we lock into a pocket that feels you know deep in a, in a particular way, or we lay back on the beat or whatever, th- there's there's a response in the room to people who love that music, and yeah. I think that is really energizing for me. Do, do you find the same thing? Like people respond to certain things you do, and it's like I know that thing yes. that has a place in my heart. You know, absolutely. I mean, whether it be a rhythmic thing whether it be an arrangement thing, a harmonic thing, or just choice of how to shape the energy arc of the set. Yeah, 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 definitely. It's really an interesting thing to see the way the audience responds because I've played in a bunch of other pop bands and toured with other artists where it's just, it's more general public thing and they they respond differently than a muso crowd. And yeah. there's certain things where it's like hit on one and then the bass, boom. You know, the crowd, (laughs) where a general public crowd is going to go nuts when the chorus comes. It's like, neither one of them is wrong. But everybody no, uh, absolutely, room, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, that's really well put. You know, even just like like drummer, you know, drummer puts a crash on two. Yeah, it's like killing, you know, killing. Yeah, you know, but and even more so if you like dropped out on the four, didn't hit the one, came back in on the two. It's like oh, you know. Yeah, yeah, I don't believe it. You know, but I think that's because they know what that feels like. Like you know, they know what that means. It's like ah. I can't believe you did the thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and and even you know one level down from people who who would be able to consciously enunciate like, oh, he did the thing where he didn't play the one, just being like, yeah, is like I was expecting the drums to continue playing, but they didn't. Yeah, and so it makes you laugh, you know. It makes you, it, yeah, it, it makes you makes you cry, you know. All all these things that are, you can affect people by leading them in one direction then gradually letting that expectation dissolve or go or changing it and then bringing them back to it at the end you know all these things i think the magic of music is that they can be conscious or unconscious both from musician and from the audience perspective you know and i don't think you it, i don't think you need to be able to enunciate or articulate what it is that's going on for it to move you even high level musical stuff yeah. You know, even I'm playing a chord of E major and there's, a, there's an F sharp on the top of the chord and suddenly I'm playing an, 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 an A flat sus, like an A yeah. flat sus 13 and there's an F sharp on the top or G flat on the, on, on the top of the chord. And just, just the feeling of that note, it's like, it's, it's, it's so steadfast, you know, it's like, man, can't believe that it, it pulled, I was pulled from one, from one sound to another sound. And I don't feel like I was alienated throughout the transition because the pivot was successful. I, I think a lot of those emotional devices... They, well, they, they are emotional devices. You know, they're not theoretical devices. Where it's like, well, I know it works because the textbook said blah blah blah. You know, yeah. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, fuck it. It's 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 amazing because it makes you feel something. And I think for me, there's a real beauty in seeing that translate to audience members or listeners who don't know what the hell's going on, but they know something's going on and they feel it. And that that's like it's it's almost like the sort of magic in in the room at at, at that time. Yeah. One of the fun riddles like that that I'm always trying to solve live for me is I set myself up or set the audience up for a big guitar solo, but then I just play like a rhythm guitar solo. (laughs) And it's like there's this thing, there's this anticipation 
And by the end of it, they realize they've been kind of bamboozled into listening to a rhythm guitar solo instead of like something shredding. But it's just different and it's cool and their attention was kept in a different way and it was all about the yeah, I, I, I honestly think that you, I, I'm not going to say single-handedly, but, you know, you have, you've made a space for that to be possible for people. You know, you, you've said, I'm not going to play a solo which goes, you know, I'm just going to go, and and people go nuts, you know. I, I think it's really great that, you know, that, that, that you that you've done that. I, I mean, thank you for doing that. I think it's 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 a relief because it 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 just takes someone to to be willing to, as I say, sort of stick their neck out and say, you know, I'm not going to do the thing that has always been done here. I can do something else. And you know, you you know this killing Prince guitar thing. Yeah. Well, now it fits in reggae. Or yeah. Now you know you know that Ganawa swing that you know that fits in rock and roll. That fits in hip hop now. It's like once someone's done it or made it possible, then it's possible for everybody. And and I think that you know yeah the the anticipation building of the rhythm guitar thing at the solo point, it's killing for a number of reasons. But but one of the reasons I think is because it it's not immediately gratifying. You know, it's not like high note. You know, yeah. it's like building, 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 and it means you know means bass underneath can go and build and the drums can come and then when it releases it's like ah oh, you know yeah it's the same it's you know same kind of releases if you're in a club and it's like you you've been you've been you know four on the flooring for a while and suddenly it's like kick it jumps out and it's like high pass on the mix it's like and once you've done that it, it, everything falls back and forth back in place it builds yeah. and builds and builds and builds I think that's a really cool device because, you know, it's funny how audiences can be really easy to please in that way. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take it away. I'm going to bring it back. And everyone's like, goes nuts. And But there's something really wonderful about about that. And and I think one of the joys of being a musician is like trying to achieve that feeling in like a ton of different ways, you know, yeah. well, because there's so many ways you could do that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oddly enough, the place that I got it from, and I know I, you've got to know this album, the place that I got the rhythm guitar thing and just like, let's sit in the groove a while. The first time I got hip to that was part two of Keith Jarrett's Colm concert. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That's crazy. That I was mean, that whole piece one. is yeah, masterpiece. So how, how did that, can you describe what he, how, how those devices are, are similar? Because I'm sure some listeners will be confused at that, at that reference. Well, he had this undercurrent going with his left hand. Then, yeah, I remember. You know, so he's uh, got the undercurrent, and I, you expect him to do all this jarity, reharm, interesting, taking it way out, and it just kind of bubbles in this undercurrent, and then his right hand starts to bring in a single note, major chord melody, uh, uh, hinting pentatonic. Uh, and just when you think he's going to, it's just like he gives a little hint of something interesting harmonically, but then it just sits in this thing for a couple minutes and then sits and then sits and then just <laughs> repeats the phrase almost like a mantra. But the yeah. undercurrent, the groove of it is ever changing and it's kind of moving around. It's a it's a really cool thing to to try to bring that sort of emotion to a rhythm guitar part. Oh, totally, yeah, and obviously when, when he when he then breaks out of that harmonically or or rhythmically or whatever, it's like oh whoa relief, yeah. like something. This is energy is being created, and and so I think it, yeah, it's cool. It, you know, the, the moment you yeah, the moment you set something up or you take something out or you keep something the same, you know, it it changes the energy and it, it means that you'll be able to break out of it in the same way. And and you know, I think that's there's 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 a real there's a real magic and a real art about 
getting that right, you know, yeah. taking stuff out at the right moment. Like let's let's axe the drums now, or let's bring the drums back in now, or let's go on the ride now, or you know, let's turn on the turn on the distortion now. You know, all these different ways in which you can build and release tension. I, I love all that stuff. It's it's crazy to to think about it. And I think that's fun because people can experiment. That the the place that we're in in the world right now, in this century, like you're talking about being able to do everything at home. I can mm. do a lot of stuff, but you know, I do everything in logic and I can build this world around this riff and I can try all these different things and see what it, see if I have a visceral reaction from yeah. what dropping out and coming back in on the two does for me. And then if I'm the one who programmed it to do that and it still did the thing for me, imagine what it's going to do for somebody who didn't see it coming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and imagine what it's going to do when, when you play it with real musicians in a in a room. Absolutely. As well. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Cool. Well, man, this has been really fun. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're coming up on time here for uh, people's attention span, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the podcast attention span. But this has been super fun. I really appreciate you coming. Dude, we gotta, we gotta get together and play. We have to play. We some must. Music. We absolutely must. I mean, it, it will most definitely happen at some point. Yeah. When when traveling resumes, where where are you? Where are you based in the world? Minneapolis. Oh, Minneapolis. Okay, killer. Yeah. yeah at some point, we're gonna get together and we're gonna make some make some crazy music. I, I'm 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 well excited for that. All right, we'll we'll get our sixteenth notes all lined up and everything. Hell, just just the right yeah. amount. <laughs> <laughs> just the right amount. I, I dig it. I dig it. Thanks, Corey. Dude, th thanks so much for having me on. This has been a, a super energizing and and fun conversation. Thanks, man. That's it. That's the interview. That was really fun. Wow, brilliant musician. Check out all of his music because it's amazing. I am a huge fan of Jacob Collier, and. I am so excited to see what the next 50 years holds for his musical brain, his collaborations, and the impact that he has on music and society as a whole, because I really believe that he is going to become an ambassador for music in the world. That's it. We'll see you next week. Peace.